0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week we are talking again about the war in Ukraine. But this time we're going to do it from a Ukrainian perspective, not with military experts, but with a philosopher and also with my colleague, Andy Wilson, who is a professor of Ukrainian politics. So Andy has been on the podcast before. He's a senior policy fellow at ECFR and has written lots of books about Ukraine, but we're also really happy to welcome Volodymyr Yomalenko, who's a Ukrainian philosopher, author of Crime Without Punishment, and also editor of Ukraine's World which is a website. He does lots of podcasts on what's happening on on Ukraine, and he's going back and forth between the west of Ukraine and Kyiv, and is joining us down the line from from Ukraine at the moment. Thank you both very much for joining.
1: Thank you, Mark. Good
0: to to hear you. Why don't we start with talking about um, the crisis that we're in at the moment, Vladimir, you've you've talked a lot about why we, the terminology which people use is quite important. That we shouldn't call it a Ukraine crisis. Why do you say that?
1: Well, because we don't call a start of the, for example, the German invasion of Poland a Poland crisis. We don't call. Uh, Soviet tanks in uh, in Prague in 1968, a Czechoslovakia crisis, and our call from Ukraine to the whole world since 2014 actually is not to call it Ukraine crisis or Ukraine conflict or Ukraine war. Unfortunately, we see it everywhere. It's not that Ukraine should be at the center as a victim. Uh, the the perpetrator should, should be at the center. It's Russia's war, it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, and not only of Ukraine, it's basically Russia's war against the civilized world.
0: Okay, that's something which the, the German foreign minister said, um, I think, at the Munich Security Conference, that, that this is a Russia crisis, not a Ukraine crisis. It's not that often that we come at what's happening not just through the sort of bloody pictures which we're seeing on the screen in the human tragedy, but, but the, the ideas which uh, are at stake in, in what's going on in Ukraine. Andy, why do you think that, that it's important for us to think about this conceptually and through ideas, to, if we want to understand what, what the war in Ukraine at the moment?
2: Well, ideas are just as important as the correct terminology. It may seem strange, but hopefully only initially, to talk about ideas when people are dying when war crimes are being committed by Russia daily. But understanding motivation is key in any conflict. There's a lot of talk at the moment about whether Putin is a rational actor. He's gone mad, full tonto, in the words of the British Defence Secretary. It might be the drugs he's taking for various possible illnesses. He's been isolating because of COVID, turning into a bit of a Howard Hughes. But what's really irrational is Russia's parallel reality propaganda world, which has been growing, metastarsizing now for almost a quarter of a century. This hasn't so much lost touch with reality. It was always a, a narrative constructed on its own terms. Putin is trapped, or, or better, voluntarily imprisoned inside that narrative, inside that matrix. And what he says sounds crazy to us because. We are outside of that narrative. But if you listen, he sticks to the narrative. Uh, Ukraine is a failed state because Ukraine isn't a nation. Uh, Ukraine, therefore, only exists because it's kept on life support by foreign powers. And those foreign powers are are using Ukraine at Russia, which is actually pretty scary. uh, Insofar as Ukraine is resilient, fighting back uh, for Putin, logically, that means the West is fighting back against Russia. And the implications are pretty dramatic of that. I mean, don't get me wrong, Putin is personally responsible for the war, but he's working within this this big lie and and the power of that narrative, which also contains many of the ideas that we'll talk about now, empire, geopolitics, but also, of course, Ukraine's own ideas about its identity and history are key to understanding what's going on.
0: So, Volodymyr, what are the kind of core ideas and concepts which define Ukrainian history and identity?
1: Well, I, th- I think uh, the key uh, the key distinction with the Russian political culture, I would say that Russian political culture has always been centered on an idea of a tyrant, of a tsar, of a monarch. And nothing is more alien to Ukrainian political culture. Uh, Ukrainian political culture is centered around community. The key word of Ukrainian political history and political uh, philosophy is the word community. Uh, in Ukrainian, it's called the horomada. If you go back into the 19th century, you will see the key Ukrainian philosophers talking about this. And even now, if you see, for example, President Zelensky, who is always in, uh, surrounded by his ministers, by ordinary people, he's presenting himself as a kind of party of a community, whereas Putin is presenting himself as a kind of a distant person, unreachable to others and, um, and in his own world. Uh, so if you read, for example, the 19th century literature in Ukrainian, but also the travelers to, through Ukrainian territories, they would always describe even Ukrainian society, even stateless Ukrainian society as incredibly democratic. I would also say that uh, Ukrainian identity has not only this democratic element, but uh, what we might call the Republican element, uh, which is linked, of course, to this uh, early modern tradition of Polish-Lithuanian Republic, the so-called Rzeczpospolita. And this anti-tyrannical spirit, which uh, in Ukrainian political theory, political thinking is always you know, present in the 19th century, in the 18th, in the 17th century, in the way how the Cossacks, which is a Ukrainian warrior class, early modern warrior class, is organized. It is still here. It is still present. And it is still uh, remarkably different from the Russian political tradition.
0: So maybe we should Go into that a little bit more deeply. Andy, you've been looking at uh, Russian politics and political technology uh, for for a long time now um, and have been writing about some of the the sort of core historians around Putin, like Vladimir Bedinsky. How would you say that they're kind of framing the current situation?
2: Well, for those of you who don't know, uh, political technology, which isn't a term that we use much in the West is a very, very common and well-known term in Russia and Ukraine. It means manipulating the supply side of the political system. And it's extraordinary how a lot of Russian historicizing is not done by professional historians, but by these so-called political technologists or PR guys. And this uh, Vladimir Medinsky is one of them. He's been Putin's court historian for a long time. He was former minister of culture. A lot of people are suspecting of writing Putin's notorious history essay about Ukraine. More about that in a minute. And he's actually across the table from the Ukrainians during the current peace talks. A pretty extraordinary person to choose to head the Russian side. He's not a proper historian. He's really a PR guy. He's written about this in books with titles like Scoundrels and geniuses of Russian PR from Rurik to Ivan the Terrible. Uh, pretty terrible book, well, populist, sort of um, bad history. Like a lot of these political technologists, so called, um, he plagiarized both of his dissertations. He played a notorious role in the propaganda about the Panfilov 28. Let me explain what that was. Uh, it's kind of Soviet wartime myth. Uh, that uh, Soviet officer Panfilov and his 27 men defeated a German advance, destroying 18 tanks. They were all killed in the process. Even the KGB knew as early as 1948 that this was all made up. What did Medinsky say? Let me read his remarks. My fundamental conviction is that even if their story is completely made up from beginning to end, even if there was no Panfilov, even if there was nothing, This is a sacred legend that you can't touch. And anybody who does is wretched scum. It doesn't matter that this is completely false. It's the myth that matters. And he says regularly that Ukraine doesn't exist. uh, And he does so by resurrecting some of the ideas of one of 19th century Russia's worst historians, a guy called Mikhail Pogodin. He argued with zero evidence when the Mongols invaded Kiev in the 13th century, people literally moved north uh, into the safety of the forests and became the Russians. Uh, Ukrainians arrived much later from places like Poland, and there's zero evidence for that kind of stuff. So the weird thing is that this guy is in charge of negotiations, so-called peace negotiations, which is why they're not real negotiations, and why the real point is, I think. Just to insult the Ukrainians by introducing their identity with this this guy,
0: so Vladimir, you've also written quite a lot about um, Russia's zero politics, as you call it, and, and also um, some of the, the debates which are, uh, which are being propagated and debated in, in Russia. What, what do you think um, is going on in terms of these big Russian narratives?
1: I think to understand Russia, we should go back to the early 20th century. To people like uh, Karl Schmidt or Haushofer, all this geopolitical tradition. And uh, we should really consider Russian political thinking, people like Medinsky or people like Dugin as a, as a continuation of this uh, far right conservative tradition. In which basically individuals do not exist. In which even political nations do not exist. Mr. Medinsky once said that Russian is not a uh, concept for the to designate nation, but it's civilization. Russian is civilization. What does it mean that political borders do not exist? That you can cross the borders at any point and you can uh, uh, make any wars you 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 want. Uh so basically I think this is this is important to understand what I mean by zoopolitics is that It's completely different from the Western ideas of positive sum game or even zero sum game. What Russians are doing is a negative sum game. They know they will lose from this war, but they want the other to lose much more than than them. They're preparing their people for this. They're preparing their people for suffering just to give a very perverse pleasure that somebody else will suffer more than them. I think this this is something that can explain all this cruelty that they are doing right now, because let's not forget that they are bombing hospitals, that they are bombing maternity houses, that they are destroying the whole cities like Mariupol right now. This is an absolute, absolute disaster and catastrophe, where people are just burying their dead on on streets, and when when there is no water, no electricity, nothing uh this is what's happening and um, the, I, I think the western the western problem is looking at russia in the in the recent decades is that uh, it was an attempt to kind of a see Russians as more or less as the Western world but slightly different and uh, it's just missed the point that Russia was uh, heading in complete different direction and much closer to the twentieth uh, century totalitarianism.
0: So, Andy, you've been writing about um, the influence of Carl Schmitt. I'd like to come back to that in a second. But just before we do that, can you go a, a bit more into more detail on this politics idea? This idea that that Russian politics about, you know, making other people suffer even more than the Russians, even if, if they if the Russian people have to suffer themselves. How is that compatible with the fact that actually, you know, Russian media is trying to to hide quite a lot of the suffering which is going on in Ukraine, and to still talk about what's happening as a as a special operation.
1: Well, uh, I think the, the the one very important thing is that uh, uh, Russians are hiding their losses because they're not really showing any value of the of of the lives of their soldiers, and this is remarkable. That uh, okay, you, you can consider any kind of authoritarianism, or totalitarianism as neglecting the lives of any other so far-right nationalism and uh, like cherishing the life of your own citizens but remarkably russians are not even cherishing the lives of, of their citizens we see the reports how many dead russian soldiers are in in belarusian and belarusian hospitals how uh, they are not uh, buried properly, and there is no, you know, ceasefire to get the the dead bodies, etc. And this is remarkable. This is remarkable. This also makes us a uh, link to to Stalinist history, which which is famous phrase that which means that we don't care about the price. We don't care about how many people will die. We don't care about, from both sides, we don't care about how many people will be lost, but we will just proceed. And I think this is, this is one of the most horrible things in all this story. Okay.
0: Andy, can you maybe give us a bit more detail on, on Schmidt and why he's an important person for us to understand?
2: Yeah, uh, Volodya is right. It's really important that Russia, which talks about opposing fascism, Nazism a lot, is in fact the one using both these general geopolitical ideas and ones from Carl Schmitt in particular, who was uh, a high-ranking Nazi party member from 1933 and never repented really after the war. I mean, firstly, Russians not just over-fond of geopolitics, if you go into any Russian bookshop, it's full of these big pseudo-scientific uh, tomes on the subject. But the way that Russians talk about geopolitics is is very zoopolitical and very nineteenth-century big powers magically moving borders, dividing up countries, and so forth. So Schmidt, in particular, what, the way that he conceptualised geopolitics and justified. Uh, Nazi actions in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, is worryingly similar to how Russia acts. I mean, for Schmidt, the world was divided up into big spaces, gross rama. Uh, for Russians, the term is civilizations. Uh, each was organized by a grand political idea, uh, which in this case is the Russian world. Every uh, gross rama, or Civilization has a hegemon, so Russia is in charge of the Russian world. Hegemons are are equal to one another. Russia should therefore talk to the USA, but not to Ukraine. But the hegemons are superior to the other limited sovereignty states in each gross realm or civilization. States like Ukraine only have technical sovereignty. The hegemon organizes the grand political idea for them. It defines foreign policy, who, friend and enemy for the limited sovereignty state, acts as policemen, particularly for what um, Schmidt called, uh, uh, what following Schmidt, a lot of Russian thinkers like Dugin and Simbursky called limitroth states, the kind of powers that maneuver between civilizations on the edge of uh, their kind of fuzzy borders. So the hegemon acts as a policeman and it keeps out foreign powers, uh, what Schmidt called Brown frame the powers who are alien to the space. So basically, putting it simply, Russia has sovereignty and Ukraine does not. Russia has sovereignty because it has what Putin's political technologist, Vladislav Surkov, called konkuretnost as Vlody was saying, this ability to compete or to emerge victorious or uh, to inflict more damage on your opponents in this world of Machtpolitik. So hopefully the parallels are clear, that the way that Russia talks about Ukraine is very similar to the way that Schmidt uh, talked about Germany and its neighbours back in the 30s. You
0: know, this is one of the, the kind of besetting sins of, of- Anglo Saxons is whenever we talk about geopolitics, we just go back to the Nazis and um, and the first person who mentions Hitler usually loses the, the 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 discussion. But do you find that this is is really uh, helpful to understand what's going on? Volodymyr?
1: I um, I think it's it's helpful because uh, because we see, for example, many Russian ideologists, uh, as Dugin or some others, quoting actually people like Karl Schmidt but um i think it is helpful in a way to to understand that russia is really one century behind uh uh the the western world and uh and uh, to understand what's going on we need to we need to dig into the early 20th century and see what was going on in this uh, social Darwinism in which really there is no place for cooperation, no place for partnership, just a, a place for, you know, for camp, for for fights.
0: So, Vladimir, a lot of people talk about what's going on as a, an imperial war at the moment. To, to what extent has anti-colonialism um, and empire been bound up with the Ukrainian national story?
1: well obviously the post uh, postcolonial discourse is very important to understand what's what's going on right now i think one of the problems is that uh, the postcolonial discourse uh, you know in the western countries uh, has digged a lot in, into the Western colonialism, but uh, not so much research has been done on, on Russian co- colonialism. Again, if we compare the the German narrative in the of the early 20th century and the Russian narrative right now, we can we can see the parallels that these uh, in the concept of continental on col- uh, continental empire. The difference between a maritime empire and continental empire is that continental empire is colonizing the nations which are might be very close to it. So I think if we compare, for example, German Nazism with current Russian, Russism or whatever you call it, uh, there are indeed similarities because Russians are indeed thinking of annihilating Ukrainian nation as, as such. So we can really use the concept of final solution of the Ukrainian question. And it's being used in Russian terminology as well. But the core difference is that a German antisemitism was uh, kind of a concerned uh, with the fact that German, that Jews were the other, which was trying to be similar to, you know, to, to uh, German identity. And therefore the Germans were spreading this narrative that, look, this is very dangerous. Uh, While for Russians, Russians consider Ukrainians as the same, or Belarusians. And every distinctions, every deviation of this sameness with Russians, they're considering as as a crime. Therefore, everything which is peculiar to Ukrainians and Belarusians, they're they're, they're saying this is Nazi. So basically, when they're saying about denazification, they're meaning de-Ukrainization. To destroy everything which is, you know, dissimilar to the Russian uh, core identity, and that's very, very important for us, uh, for us all to understand the nature of this colonialism, which is. Contrary to the Western colonialism with this, you know, orientalization narrative saying that you are colonized, you're the other, you're exotic, and you you stay with this otherness forever. Russian colonialism is different, is a colonialism of um, assimilation. As quick as uh, powerful assimilation as possible, with huge destruction of any possible, uh, any possible distinction, and this is uh, this is uh, also what's going on. But there is a difference also between uh, you know typical Western colonialism and Russian colonialism. Is that. Kiev, in a way, is a metropole for Moscow. Kiev has, uh, you know, culture, Christianity much earlier than Moscow. Kiev is uh, several centuries older than Moscow. Many cultural influences come from Kiev to Moscow uh, during medieval times, then during uh, Baroque era, then during the 19th century. And this is something which is, for Russians, is very uncomfortable, I think. They, they want to be an empire, but they understand that Without Ukraine, they're kind of a headless empire or heartless empire.
0: Andy, how do you see the the imperial and anti-imperial, post-imperial discourses playing out?
2: Well, Volodya covered a lot. Um, I guess I could add discussion of Putin's notorious history essay from last July, Uh, very much a manifesto for the current war. Um, More or less every word in it is imperial. He argues that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, but not via any kind of synthesis. Um, Ukrainians are just Russian. And any deviation, as Volodya says, is is explained away by foreign machination. It's really bad history. It's also profoundly ahistorical. There's no sense of time or agency. um, All that matters is that Ukrainians and Russians were once part of the same state in the early medieval period a thousand years ago, uh, and nothing that's happened since can change that. Uh, there's no subjectivity allowed, not just for Ukrainians, but actually that there, there's no room for ordinary Russians, for anybody ordinary in, in Putin's narrative. And Ukraine Ukrainians would disagree with almost all of this, but... Just to disagree at the end, uh, Ukrainians were polled last summer on the basic question, do you agree that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are one people? And over 70% said no, and that was uh, before the, the current war began. So imperial history, pretty bad history. And in actual history, it should be pointed out that whenever Russia has been Putinist, whenever it's taken this line, that Ukrainians are just Russians and there's no real difference between them, as it did in the kind of silver age, the late 19th century, just as it's doing now, uh, that has only repelled Ukrainians rather than brought Ukrainians and Russians together. There have been periods when that has been possible, when uh, more agency was allowed from Ukraine uh, and when there was something of a synthesis of cultures. But Putinism never works. Uh, By denying that Ukrainians exist, Ukrainians are are only ever repelled.
0: Well, we've covered quite a lot of big ideas, probably more big ideas in this podcast than in the whole year before uh, coming up uh, to this podcast. Um, And I think it provides a really, really interesting insight into some of the really troubling um, events which we're living through on a daily basis and which you particularly Andrea, are having to, to endure. But there's one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Andy?
2: Well, I've been rereading a book called The Last Empire by Harvard Ukrainian historian Sergei Plokhy, about a very detailed study of the last months of the Soviet Union actually, because I have to give a talk on this uh, on Wednesday. Uh, But it's a great book and it kind of looks at the truth that some things uh, were discussed in 1991, just like they are today, like Crimea and the face of East Ukraine. But they were discussed in a completely different manner. Solutions were found uh, and we didn't have the kind of crazy propagandists and political technologists poisoning everything like
0: um, we did today. What about you, Vladimir? What are you reading? Or do you have time to read at the moment with the war going on and all the humanitarian work that you're doing when you're not doing podcasts and explaining Ukraine to the world?
1: Unfortunately, no time now for books, uh, but uh, I can advise our book, which we made uh, a couple of years ago, Ukraine in, in Histories and Stories. Uh, you can you can find it on Amazon, but you can also find it online, available on our website, Ukraine World, in which there is also Serhii plahi, which Andy mentioned, I, I took an interview with him, with him, also prominent Ukrainian historian, Yaroslav Hrytsak, also prominent Ukrainian writers. For example, there is an essay by Volodymyr Rafienko from Donetsk about the way how he escaped Russians in Donetsk. And uh, right now he was trapped in near Irpin. Uh, North of Kiev, and uh, hopefully, thanks God, he he escaped it because uh, in these northern uh, suburbs there is a real, a real genocide, real, real humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, so there are people who you know who need to, unfortunately, become uh, refugees several times uh, in in their lives already. But uh, I advise you to read our book. This is a collection of essays from Ukrainian historians, writers, and philosophers.
0: Thank you very much. Um, We're going to put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, do subscribe to it on whatever platform you use to, to listen to it on. And while you're there, if you want to give us a positive review and a five star rating, we would be very, very grateful indeed. Our hearts and our thoughts are all with you, Vladimir, and, and all the Ukrainians who are living through these horrendous historical times. I think it's been real privilege to to talk a bit about how these issues tie into some of the thinking about Ukrainian identity and history and to to put these questions uh in Ukrainian voices, because so much of the discussion has been uh, about Ukraine as a sort of distant object framed by the Russians, by the West. Um, and we're hopefully going to come back, uh, Andy and I, to uh, these topics with several other Ukrainian guests over over the weeks ahead. Um, but very, very grateful to you, Volodymyr, for having taken the time to talk to us.
1: Thank um, you. Thank you very much.
0: So that's all we've got time for today, folks. But from Volodymyr Yamelenko, Andrew Wilson, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Marlene Riegel.